Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. These beautiful words that I just read to you were written by a deceptive, backstabbing, adulterous murderer. How can that be the case and someone be capable of writing such a sincere psalm about a relationship, a relationship with God? Better yet, how could there even be a relationship with God at all? It does not make sense. And that will be a common theme for our lesson tonight. Have you ever truly considered the phrase, relationship with God? I imagine that if not knowing any better, and just having a complete blank slate, if someone were to come to you and say something like, there is one God, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and eternal. He created everything and gave life to everything. He holds all the mysteries of the universe in his hands. And he knows you. What's more, he loves you and wants a relationship with you so that he can dwell with you for eternity too. It would make sense to think that can't be right. That does not make sense. Just like, imagine, imagine the hubris involved with believing that statement. This God that you just described knows and loves me, me? I'm not special. Why would such an entity know and care for me? It feels arrogant just saying the words to you today. But that's the story of grace. That's the story of this entire book. It's just story after story about what a relationship with God can look like and all of its horrible flaws and imperfections. And that's what our lesson tonight is about. We're going to delve into examples of relationships with God found in the scriptures. 
and what they can look like. We're going to consider the optics of the situations and the perspective of other peoples involved that the story is not specifically about so that we can focus on the actual relationship with God in the story itself. So to do that, open up your Old Testaments, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to be reading out of the net version tonight. And I'll be flipping back and forth between the ESV. To give you some context, the psalm that I read at the beginning of the lesson was written by David at a time when he was a little bit more reliant and faithful towards God. This story is about the great King David, the conquering warrior, the author of the psalms and prayers that we still read today, this great champion of faith and the most legendary king of Israel. It reads, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, In the spring of the year, at the time when kings normally conduct wars, David sent out Joab with his officers and the entire Israelite army. They defeated the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed behind in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Now this woman was very attractive. So David sent someone to inquire about the woman. The messenger said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Stop right there. So David's walking around on his roof, thinking about things that kings probably tend to think about when they're walking around on the roof, and he notices a beautiful woman bathing. We wish the story read something like this. David noticed the beautiful woman bathing, felt ashamed for gawking at his friend's naked wife, then remembered he's married and decides to look somewhere else. Because David is married. Do you remember that story? David married King Saul's daughter, Michael, back when he was a nobody. He had just killed a Goliath. He was starting to become famous. And King Saul offered his daughter to David as a wife. But David at the time was too humble to marry the king's daughter, so Saul offers him his other daughter for a price. The price of 100 foreskins of dead Philistines. And in 1 Samuel 18, we read that David didn't just bring 100 foreskins of Philistines, he brought 200. He killed 200 men and brought 200 foreskins to Saul as a prize so that he could marry his daughter, Michael. Now, David and Michael did not have the best relationship, but we learn in 2 Samuel 3 that David actually had multiple wives at the time of this story that we're reading, but none of that crossed his mind when he saw a woman bathing. And in verse 4, we start to see how tragic this story can become. It reads, David sent some messengers to get her. She came to him, and he had sexual relations with her. Now at the time, she was in the process of purifying herself from her menstrual uncleanness. Then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. 
So David sent a message to Joab that said, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Now remember, Uriah is not just some random guy. Uriah is one of David's elite 30 mighty men. He has been fighting side by side with David for years and has been loyal to David for years, and Bathsheba is his wife. Verse 7 reads, When Uriah came to him, David asked about how Joab and the army were doing and how the campaign was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your home and relax. When Uriah left the palace, the king sent a gift to him, but Uriah stayed at the door of the palace with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So they informed David, Uriah has not gone down to his house. And so David said to Uriah, haven't you just arrived from a journey? Why haven't you gone to your house? And Uriah replied to David, the ark and Israel and Judah reside in temporary shelters and my lord Joab and my lord's soldiers are camping in an open field. Should I go to my house? and eat, and drink, and have marital relations with my wife, as surely as you're alive, I will not do this thing. So David said to Uriah, stay here another day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem both that day and the following one. Then David summoned him, and he ate and drank with him, and got him drunk, But in the evening, he went out to sleep on his bed with the servants of the Lord, and he did not go down to his own house. So David tries to cover up his sin by bringing Uriah home from battle to be with his wife under the guise of wanting a battle report, but Uriah has too much integrity to even go see his wife. So then David gets him drunk, but even still Uriah refuses to enjoy his own home while his brothers and his countrymen are out at war. Verse 14, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Station Uriah in the thick of the battle and then withdraw from him so he will be cut down and killed. So as Joab kept watching the city, he stationed Uriah at the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. When the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, some of David's soldiers fell in in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent a full battle report to David. He instructed the messenger as follows, When you finish giving the battle report to the king, if the king becomes angry and asks you, Why did you go so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerobasheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone down from the wall that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so close to the wall? Just say to him, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger departed. When he arrived, he informed David of all the news that Joab had sent with him. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and attacked us in the field, but we forced them to retreat all the way to the door of the gate, the city, Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, tell Joab, don't let this thing upset you. There's no way to anticipate whom the sword will cut down, press the battle against the city, and conquer it. Encourage him with these words. When Uriah's wife heard her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for him. And when the time of mourning passed, David brought her to his palace. She became his wife, 
and she bore him a son. But what David had done upset the Lord. Since his cover-up attempts failed, rather than just admit his wrongdoing, David writes a death sentence for Uriah and has him hand-deliver it to Joab in the battle. And then Uriah, the loyal warrior, is killed, and David takes his wife Bathsheba as his own wife. Can you imagine a more despicable story of betrayal? How could someone capable of this have not just have a relationship with God, but be the famed King David? This is the man after God's own heart. It doesn't make sense to you and me. It can't. But what about Bathsheba? What do you think her relationship with David was like? Do you think she ever thought of David as a husband like she did Uriah? Do you ever think she thought of David as the man after God's own heart after all this? What do you think about Joab? What do you think he thought of David after this? Do you think he ever really trusted an order from the king again after this? Or is this the kind of thing that if it happens, you don't ever really fully get that back. What about Uriah's family or anyone he was close to? The other 29 mighty men. What do you think they thought of David? He knows better. Some king, a man of God, is a coward and a murderer. Do you think any of them were ever capable of forgiving David? Or in the realm of man, is this something that just... Maybe you move past it. He's the king after all. Do you forgive something like that? David's relationship with God was turbulent to say the least. He did things that we would consider unconscionable, and at this point in time, that's exactly what his relationship with God looked like. As awful and tragic a story this is, it's here for our benefit so that we can understand not how horrible you and I can be, but how deep God loves us and the lengths that he's willing to go through to maintain a relationship with you that just does not make sense. What about Abraham? The great Abraham, the great patriarch, the father of the nation, chosen by God himself to father and lead the, and to be the one who started his nation of his people. In Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham, leave your home, take your family, leave your, most of your family, and go somewhere, I'll show you. And he does it. In the same chapter, 
he's faced with a difficult situation. Let's look how he reacts in that, in that moment. In Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. It reads, There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to stay for a while because the famine was severe. As he approached Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, Look, I know you're a beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but keep you alive. So tell them you're my sister, so that it may go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on account of you. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, so Abram's wife was taken into the household of Pharaoh. And he did treat Abram well on account of her. Abram received sheep and cattle, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe diseases because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave his men orders about Abram, so they expelled him along with his wife and all his possessions. We just casually read through this story as a, there's a lot going on in Genesis, and so we just kind of read this and keep on going. But can you imagine Sarah's reaction to Abram's plan? Ladies, how would it you react if Abram points out to you, hey, honey, gives you a little wink, you're pretty easy on the eyes, you know, but there's a famine, so I'm just going to let Pharaoh have you. Protect myself, you know. Got to do what you got to do. I imagine she would think something like, you just had enough faith to get up and leave our home for some unknown destination just because God said so. Now you're going to lie and give me to Pharaoh as a wife because you're worried about your well-being? That's your plan? What happened to your faith? Now, I've, I don't want to come across as too harsh on Abram here, but I've never been in this situation, so I don't know, but... Self-preservation's not too high on my priority list if someone's trying to touch my wife. You think Sarah ever truly trusted Abram again after that? Maybe there was a little hesitation for the rest of their relationship. Last time old boy had a plan, could have gone sideways real quick. Maybe Abram let his priorities slip a little bit in this moment. I don't know, but this feels like a real low point for Abram in his story. And God intervened because he knew Abram's heart and he had made him a promise.
God intervened Abram's terrible idea because he made him a promise. He chose him to be the Abraham that we know today for a reason. And he's made us promises too, hasn't he? So a few takeaways from these stories, and then the lesson will be yours. First off, you may encounter people in your life when they are at their absolute lowest point, like David. They may be stunned at their own actions. And they may be in a place where everyone in their life looks at them like a despicable human being and wants nothing to do with them. Or maybe, like Abram, someone has been put into a situation that they've never been in before and they don't handle it well. Or their faith is challenged in ways that, that they weren't expecting and could really require some adjustment. It could be someone is like Peter who has a relationship with Jesus. And maybe they're pretty confident in that relationship with Jesus. In fact, maybe like Peter, they're so vocal. And from the outside looking in, they seem real confident and real secure in their faith. But just prior to denying Jesus' existence three times, in Luke 22, Jesus tells him, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Don't be so confident, Peter. Believe me, Satan wanted you. But I wouldn't let it happen. Remember that God extends a level of grace to us that just does not make sense. And that's why it's grace. In 2 Samuel 12, God forgives David for what he did. There are consequences, but God forgave David. And David writes Psalm 51 in repenting of his sin. And that reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did, I, did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop that I may be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
at this moment, it was a very messy relationship that cost David dearly. But God still maintained the relationship with David. And then, if there is something in your life, perhaps in your past, perhaps a struggle today that's causing you to doubt if you're worthy of a relationship with God, don't worry. You're not worthy of a relationship with God. Let it go. And put all your confidence in the fact that God has called you like a father calls to his child. And go to him like a child goes to their father. Remember the scripture reading from Romans 8? When this omnipotent, eternal, powerful, all-knowing God calls us his children and heirs with an inheritance... My kids are little, and I don't know what the future holds. But I read these passages differently now because I know there is nothing they can ever do that will stop me from loving them. They're my kids. There may be heartbreak in my future. There may be disappointment or betrayal. I don't know. But I will always want a relationship with my kids. That's referenced later, Romans 8. In verse 35 reads, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing you all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor heavenly rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever is in your mind that's stopping you from saying, I can have a relationship with God, I promise you it's not enough. God wants you. Jesus died for you. Give him your heart and go to your father. So if you believe there's a need to restore the relationship, just know you don't have to do it alone. Do what needs to be done to come to your father. And let us know as we stand and sing.